Ink and Quill illuminates on literature, culture and beyond. That's cool, isn't it? Listen to the sound of some incredible readings. The Great Wall story is the story of the relationship. The imagery in China is so strong. It's a book about the human story. Ink and Quill. Something provoking. We have to think like a queen. Something thoughtful. History's fantasy, really. Something fun. See some naughty people trying to steal panda cubs. All here on Ink and Quill. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. Once excluded by the virulent immigration law implemented by the U.S. government from the late 19th century until World War II, the Chinese community is now not only one of the largest but also one of the fastest-growing ethnic groups in the United States. The racial stereotype often labels Chinese Americans as the modern minority, as they seem to seamlessly weave themselves into the patchwork of the American society. But is this really the case? To find out the answer, this episode helps us delve into the story of a Chinese immigrant, whose writing navigates the vicissitude of Chinatown. And whose own life experiences is a story worth telling. Don't go away. If you love him, bring him to New York, for it's heaven. If you hate him, bring him to New York, for it's hell. <laughs> In 1994, the then China Central Television, the country's predominant state media, aired a TV series titled *Beijinger in New York*, based on a semi-autobiographical novel written by Glen Tao. The drama showcases the ups and downs of a young Chinese couple that strives hard to find a new life in the Big Apple. Two pieces, two pieces. Why stay here? Go upstairs. It portrays the everyday struggles of the Chinese immigrant and the clashing of two cultures. Once aired, the show soon became a national blockbuster, whereas its source of material, the namesake novel, turned into a bestseller. But did the show actually reflect reality? It in fact does portray real-life issues. Especially so when looking at the garment factory scene, where everything seems so accurate. When we migrated to the United States, garment factories were thriving. They looked for new workers almost every day. Though the wages were low, many Chinese still applied. This is Zhao Sihong, a San Francisco-based writer, columnist, and collector. Originally from China's Guangdong Province, she has been living in the United States for almost three decades. Our whole family migrated to America in 1988. Before we came to San Francisco, my husband was an engineer, me a civil servant. Whereas our daughter was still in kindergarten. My father-in-law was a patriotic overseas Chinese. To serve his motherland, he went to China when the Second World War broke out and returned to California when he retired. Following his return, he started bringing his three kids over one by one. Then he helped us apply for U.S. citizenship. 
because he believed that there were more opportunities that lay ahead. But you know, we had a rather easy life in China. Coming to America, we had to start everything from scratch. Just like the young Chinese couple from the TV series Beijing in New York, without any tertiary education qualifications in the U.S., Zhao and her husband had no choice but to start building a new home from nothing. I tumbled from being a civil servant to working as a domestic helper. I took the job because it gave me enough time to take care of my daughter. When we first arrived, we couldn't find the right school for her straight away, so she mostly was pretty edgy and upset. Around that time, my husband couldn't find a job, so the entire family was pretty on edge too. But we tried our best to deal with problems at hand. Then a service company called International Chinese Affairs was looking for a secretary. I was picked out from over 200 applicants and then worked there for eight years. Located in Chinatown of San Francisco, the company provided an all-inclusive package of operations for Chinese immigrants, ranging from immigration registration, property inheritance to career placement and language training. Zhao recalls. One of my responsibilities was to find jobs for new immigrants. But a good job doesn't just magically appear. I had to try and search with all my might. I needed to maintain a good relationship with employers, such as restaurant owners, garment factory managers, or the heads of tech companies. So as long as there was a vacancy, I could be informed and recommend someone to fill it as soon as possible. But my main duty was related to paperwork, since I was relatively familiar with the laws and regulations in the Chinese mainland. I helped people get hired, and sometimes even acted as a matchmaker. According to Zhao's rough calculation, during her eight years working for the company, she dealt with almost a hundred people every day and played as a matchmaker for a staggering eight hundred lonely souls. As she observed, many immigrants were unfortunately stuck between their old and new lives. Some new immigrants still buried themselves in their past lives, because while in China, they used to command leadership roles. But when they came here trying to land managerial jobs, chances were slim for them because they didn't have locally acquired degrees. They therefore needed to swallow their pride and jump at whatever opportunities they encountered while seeking for better offers. For eight consecutive years, Zhao Sihong had dedicated her life in providing information and tips on housing, employment, language courses for the immigrant population. Until suddenly one day, I felt so worn out and exhausted. I couldn't cope with so many different requests on a daily basis. I told my manager at the time that if I had to continue my job, I would not be able to deliver the results those new immigrants wanted. So I quit. But people still flocked to my former office looking for help. When they couldn't find me, they started posting notices in local dailies. The head of the newspaper S.F. Chinese Times took it as an opportunity. 
The editors reached out to me and asked me to write about my experiences working at Chinatown for their paper. Even though she had not had any professional training in writing, Zhao still gave it a shot. The first article struck a chord among the Chinese community, who encouraged her to write more. Another eight years passed. Zhao Sihong had published over a million words worth of stories in her column, resulting in a two-volume book, *The Road to Gold Mountain*, or in Chinese, *Jing Shan Zhi Lu*. When asked where she sought her inspiration from, the author replies. I didn't need to mine for ideas. The majority of the stories came from the cases I dealt with when I worked at Chinatown. But I also tapped into the life experiences of some unusual individuals, such as Anna Chen Schnaud, a Chinese-born American politician who married a prominent World War II general, Claire Lee Schnaud. And also flying tigers, veterans, soldiers who fought during the war of resistance against the Japanese aggression, and many, many more. But my writing still focused heavily on the immigrant community I once served. Composed of various short stories, *The Road to Gold Mountain* charts the joys, sorrows, bitterness, and pains from many living in Chinatown. Flipping through the pages. Readers are able to take an intimate glimpse into the Chinese American community, its microcosms and mechanisms. From parenting to cross-racial marriages, many issues are discussed. As the writer examines the whimsical tales and complexities of each individual with care and compassion, the stereotyped modern minority myth is dismantled. Just like many other ethnic minorities. Chinese Americans also face the same anxieties, culture shock, economic shifts, and political struggles that many other migrants endure. In 2002, the Board of Supervisors of the City and County of San Francisco issued Zhao Sihong with a certificate of honor, commending her for her literary work that vividly depicts the immigrant experience in California. But in the eyes of Zhao, what she is mostly proud of is not her books, but rather her readers. I founded a readers club whose members scatter across the Pacific Ocean. In 1998, an earthquake broke out in South China's Yunnan Province. When the news reached the Chinese community in San Francisco, we wanted to do something for our compatriots. So, advised by Anna Chang Schnaud, we established a charitable organization among my readers. The wealthier ones were asked to contribute funds, while the strong ones to contribute labor. Initially, we raised the funds for local non-profit organizations. Later, we started to raise funds for poor children and victims of natural disasters in China. To date, we haven't stopped. Zhao admits that compared with large-scale charities, her team has a rather humble beginning. But unlike other institutions, her team sets no threshold for donors. People such as restaurant waiters. Retired workers and barbers might face financial austerities, but they want to help others as well. Some of them can only afford to donate five dollars. No charity other than us can accept such small donations, but we accept their contributions. So in that regard, we rally the grassroots. 
After all these years, we have donated more than 250,000 U.S. dollars. Since 2006, this Readers Club has shifted the focus from charity to helping relics return to China. 2005年的四月份，这中国启动了抢救，呃，那个国宝回归祖国的那个基金。In 2005, the Chinese government invested money in calling for the return of lost or stolen Chinese relics overseas. People from the Xinhua News Agency commissioned me to write an article to see how Chinese immigrants would react to this news. So I talked with some local collectors, which made me realize how many historical relics and documents from China were stranded across San Francisco. Since I was a child, I was always drawn to antiques, so I decided to use this love for antiques in hunting them down. In 2016, when I went to Beijing, my team and I brought back 38 pieces of relics and donated them to the Capital Museum of China. According to Zhao, over the years, she and the team have retrieved more than 5,000 artifacts and brought them back home. Among these 5,000 pieces of antiques, a third of them come from personal collections or family heirlooms of my readers and fans. The rest of them are purchased by my team and I. We have donated them to various museums across China, including the National Museum, the National Library, the Capital Museum of China, and the Overseas Chinese History Museum, among many others. One of the underlying tenets of mine is that wherever I go, I donate some relevant relics. From newspapers that were published during the Qing Dynasty to an extremely rare vinyl record that recorded the public speech of Sun Yat-sen, forerunner of China's anti-feudalism revolution, the treasures that Zhao and the team brought back all helped to fill in the blank history. When the nation commemorated the 70th anniversary of the War of Chinese People's Resistance against the Japanese aggression, we bought the reel of a silent film that documents the war. Later, we donated it to the Museum of the War of the Chinese People's Resistance against Japanese aggression. The curator told me that until now they haven't found any other film strips like this. When asked about a plan in the decades to come, Zhao Sihong says she and the team will carry on their task in helping victims of natural disasters and bringing back lost historical relics back to China. Personally, I think making friends by writing feels amazing. Forming a readers' club that can contribute to the society is a very rewarding experience. If anyone can do something for those in need, there will be some positive changes in terms of social norms. I'm just throwing out a minnow to catch a whale. Hopefully, what we have done can influence others. Though living in the United States for years, Zhao says she never lost touch with her heritage and ethnic ties. Every man has his own obligation, and we are just acting from our duties. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and quill. 
brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. Welcome back. You are listening to Ink and Quill with Yang Yong. There are always some literary works that can be regarded as the voice of a generation. Han Shaogong's *The Book of Day and Night* gives you a peek at the fates and choices of Chinese people born in the 1950s, while Lu Yao's novel *Ordinary World* captures the spirit of the post-60s generation. But what about those who were born in the 1980s? So in today's program, Liu Xiangwei will introduce you to a book, *The Last Night We Were Together*, or in Chinese, *Woman Yearly Zai Mei Shu Guan Tan Lian Ai*. Which may offer you a glimpse into the joys and frustrations of China's 1980s birth cohort. 下面来说说八零后的话题。八零后的独生子女们呢，如今已经从八零后可能一腔热情啊，或者说这个。Since the day they were born, China's post-80s generation, or commonly referred to 八零后 have been trapped under the spotlight. As the first generation born after the implementation of the one-child and opening-up policy, they have been the attention grabbers of their parents and direct beneficiaries of China's economic boost. Therefore, terms such as narcissistic, fickle, and spoiled are frequently used to label them. Compared with their forefathers, they are no doubt the lucky ones. But in the eyes of Wen Zhen, a post-80s writer, those tags may not be accurate, and this generation probably has suffered more than their elders. We encounter so many inflection points of the history, such as economic reform, single-child policy, the introduction of various school examinations, and the expansion of college enrollment since 1999. Due to some institutional changes, it's difficult for us to find a job or affordable housing. The complexity of our lives are simplified or filtered out against the ever-changing times. In my opinion, young people should have enough time to pursue dreams, but now we have little choice but to be pushed forward by the sheer force of this demanding society. Her latest book, *The Last Night We Were Together*, or in Chinese, *Woman Yearly in the Museum of Art*, is a collection of nine short stories. Instead of depicting the stereotypical image of post-80s generation, Wen Zhen explores the grievance, depression, and struggle of today's young urbanites. There is an itinerant couple who fail to afford their rent, dreaming of moving to a foreign planet. A lonesome telephone operator using a recorder to confide inner thoughts, and an assistant lawyer trying to commit suicide due to his unhappy marriage and career setback. Flipping through the pages, acute readers may recognize the similarities among these characters. They don't stand out in the crowds. They have stable jobs, but detest the daily grinds. Being in their late twenties or early thirties, they believe in love but lack the faith in marriage. As those characters desperately yearn for change, freedom, and redemption, the author doesn't romanticize their endeavors, but rather bestows a realistic touch. In the book, elopers have to come back to pay the house loan, while a runaway bride-to-be still returns home to face the reality. When we were kids, we were called as the rising sun at eight o'clock. But when you enter into adulthood, the world is not that dreamlike and promising. 
you realize that you are merely a lag school in this post-industrial era, and nobody drowning in the currents of rapid development. It's hard to change one's fate, so you will focus on those realistic aspects of your own life. Although many chapters meticulously depict how the pressure in daily routines could suffocate and torment people, Wen Zhen still implants hope into her works. In the beginning, I wanted to fully display the sense of despair, but gradually I became more mutual. I have been thinking about what an individual could do in this great age and how to become a better self. I'm not talking about changing yourself to be adapted into the society, but rather, you need to develop your own inner strengths. Therefore, you could ignore those changes of the outside world and never drift through life. Written in a sensitive and compassionate manner, the last night we were together receives much acclaim for its combination of alien charm's sharpness and Ernest Hemingway's sagacity on individual persistence. Many comment that、uh, the work strikes a chord, since it authentically recalls the frustration and loss of the post-80s generation. However, facing the overwhelming applause, the award-winning writer appears to be critical about her own writing. When I look back at this collection right now, I think some elements have been oversimplified, and some stories are too bleak. Next time, I probably won't act as the voice of the contemporary, but rather focus on the complexity of individuals, since it's not easy to portray the common characters of a whole generation. That was Zhang Wei introducing us to the short story collection "The Last Night We Were Together," or in Chinese, "Woman Yearly in Literature." If you want to know the mindset of Chinese people born in the 1980s, this is a book you should not miss. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always more interesting happenings in the literary world. And we will try our best to keep you posted. To learn more about us, you can follow our Facebook account China Plus, or simply download the podcast by searching the keywords "ink and quill" on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Yang Yong. See you next week.
bestseller, smash hit, page turner. Ink and Quill delves into the very heart of the works that make us laugh, cry and sigh. Snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe.